0: If you want to, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Um, we're going to start in verse 13 today, but I, I have, of course I have a story I need to tell first. Um, so as per normal, I have uh, bitten off more than I can chew again this week. This will, uh, I will not finish uh, this week again. Um, so this is, this is, it's okay, it is where it is. So we'll, we'll continue through this. I think I know where we'll end, but uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 13. Um, anybody have a, Anybody have a food that you just can't stand? Anybody have like just one, like, one thing? Okay. Uh, anybody have kids that have foods that they can't stand? Anybody there? Yeah, got that? Some of that? Okay. So Crockett, uh, my man, he, uh, he hates, well, he hates lots of foods, actually. There's, there's things that he just says he can't stand. One of them is Brussels sprouts. Anybody in here hate Brussels sprouts? Anybody that, that person? Like, okay. Who in here loves Brussels sprouts? Me too. They're delicious. Brussels sprouts are incredible. I, I, I love them so much. Well, Crockett, he can decide he doesn't like food before he tries it, right? He'll look at it and be like, I hate that. Um, Anybody? Yeah, okay. Some of you like that. Uh, And he decided before trying Brussels sprouts that he hated them. He's like, I hate those. I don't like those. And I was like, no, you have to try them. Any parent made your kid try food? Yeah, it's fun. He said, I will. He told me, he said, no, I I can't. I can't do it. I'll I'll be sick if I eat that. And I was like, no, you won't. You're being dramatic. And I made him take a bite of Brussels sprout. And as he's chewing it, he uh, begins to just uh, incessantly, uh, nonstop gagging, right? Just like constantly, like the kind where I knew if I didn't let him spit that out right then, I was about to have a big mess to clean up. And uh, I mean, it was, it was this, I laughed a lot, but it was, (laughs) it was this moment of like, I realized he was telling me the absolute truth. He could tell something I couldn't, that he really, really couldn't eat Brussels sprouts. Could not do it. And I didn't listen to him. I didn't believe him when he told me that he knew he would hate them, and I should have because it was almost really bad. So, Paul gives an incredible message today uh, in, in this passage in a synagogue, and he gives this message of salvation. And he warns them against not believing. He tells them that this disbelief was even prophesied. That he says that there's a prophecy that there's going to be a message of great hope that some won't believe, even though they're told. And it reminds me, and I I don't think we'll get to that part today, but this whole passage is about not believing the message of Christ, disbelieving what God's word says. And I think that we still struggle to this day with disbelief. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, and uh, we're going to start reading in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and, uh, Pamphylia, Uh, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Paul was traveling with Barnabas and John Mark. Um, they had been in the island, of Cyprus working, and then they're going to travel uh, north to continue. And we see he's, it's Paul with these companions. Acts has shown us that ministry is best accomplished with others, right? You, you don't see a whole lot of people by themselves doing things. You see mostly people going together to do works for God together, to be obedient together. This is why the church is absolutely necessary for Christians because we are called to do a life together as believers. Right? We're called to do this together, to uh, to be unified together, to pursue Christ together. So that's why the church is here. And you see this even inside of the church, uh, groups going together out to accomplish what God's called them to. So they go to Paphos and Perga and Pamphylia. So this is north of Cyprus, uh, the island of Cyprus on the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this is funny. I, I thought I had downloaded a uh, a picture of uh, a couple of maps that I was going to show you. And then as I opened it up, it literally just said the words of uh, the words north of Cyprus. Anyways, I, it was not right. I did not do well. So you don't have a picture. Sorry. So then uh, John left. Okay, here's what's interesting. That seems like a pretty quick thing. But we're going to get later in Acts. We're going to study this a little bit more. Um, this caused some problems, the fact that John left. You see, there's a good way to leave ministry or church, right? We saw this with Paul and Barnabas as they're being sent out from the church in Antioch, right? There's prayer, there's celebration that's being sent, and they're going to be a part of God's mission somewhere else. This was not a good leaving. We study it later, but John Mark left in a bad way and caused division that lasted for a very long time. In fact, Paul had no, uh, no, no, um, place for John Mark anymore in ministry for a a period of time because of the way that John left. So we see here that there's good ways and bad ways to leave things. Let's keep reading. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So they get to the Sabbath day. This is the the seventh day of the week on Saturday. Uh, The beginning of the church... Um, early on. Most of them kept their Sabbath routine, right? So that was still the one day that you didn't work. So on Saturday, they wouldn't work. And they kind of keep this routine going of of going and being in the Sabbath, uh, resting and being there together with some of the people that they had known and stuff like this. Um, we do know that the early church uh, eventually started meeting together on the first day of the week, at least some of the time. Um, So that would be Sunday like we are today. Um, But Sunday for them was a work day. So they would work all day long and then meet afterward. uh, And that's when they would uh, gather together as a church. So the Sabbath day, the seventh day, this was their their day that they would rest and kind of meet in the synagogue and uh, do this. So Paul and his his companions go, or Paul and Barnabas go and uh, sit in the synagogue together. These missionaries desire... For the salvation of the lost was far greater than their own fear of man. So think about this. Who hated the message of Christ the most? Religious Jewish leaders. They hated this message. So who would have been the most tempting people to absolutely not talk to? The religious Jewish leaders, right? It would have been so tempting to say, I'm just going to keep bringing this message to the people that are are more accepting of it or who who don't hate me, who don't dislike me, all this stuff. It'd be so easy to say, I'm just going to go to sit in synagogue and just kind of enjoy the routine, relax and not mess with this stuff because this is going to get me uh, in trouble. But instead, they have this great passion to see their uh, friends hear who Christ is, even if it meant the cost of their own lives because it certainly has led to this. After reading from the law and of the prophets, the rulers of the syn- uh, of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, "Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it." So after reading, so they'd read the prophets and the law every single week. Uh, this would be like the message that was delivered. Uh, a rabbi would read them and typically ask them questions and walk through a little bit of dialogue, but mainly explaining it and applying it to the to the, the synagogue walking through a portion of the law and a portion of the prophets. So after this happened, uh, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas. And they said, uh, hey, if you have something encouraging to say, say it. Uh, Be careful what you ask for, because you might get it, right? Right? So these rulers of the synagogue see Paul and Barnabas come in, and they're like, oh, we, we haven't seen these guys before. And maybe they can just tell by looking at Paul. He's a guy that looks like he knows his stuff, right? He's a new person that looks like he, you know, he's, a, he's a, and again, maybe they've even heard of this guy. Uh, at least before his conversion, because Saul of Tarsus was a Jew of Jews, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was trained by the greatest uh, theologian of the time. He was a, a, a great man in terms of uh, the way that Jewish people would have looked at him. And they're like, oh, here's a guy who knows his stuff. Let's see if he can come and teach us something. They say, if you have any word of encouragement, share it with us. Just the most encouraging message of all time, Right? Paul takes this opportunity to share the gospel at a synagogue. Now, what message of encouragement were they looking for? Tell us something that's going to make us feel good about ourselves, right? That's what we love to come and hear, don't we? Come and let me sit down and I want you, somebody, tell me good things about me. Tell me how good I'm doing, how good things are going to be. Tell me how much better I am than other people. That's the message we like to hear. What's the message that Paul brings? The message that they're not good. The message that they're lost in their sin. The message that sin is destructive, but that Jesus Christ heals the broken. That is not the message they wanted to hear, but it was the message they needed to hear. How many times do you think we come on a weekly basis to church thinking, I just want to hear that I'm good enough. I want to hear all the good things. Tell me things that make me feel good about myself. And then when the the word itself is offensive, we get mad and say, I didn't get anything out of that. What's the problem there? Is it with the word or is it with our own hearts? Let's start reading verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Listen. The God of this people, Israel, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. All right, so Paul starts out giving them a basic history. So he's walking them through some of the biggest parts of the story of the Old Testament. So he first addresses the men of Israel. These would be the fully Jewish people, both Hebrew and Greek speaking ones that are fully committed and in. They're part of this faith. They have uh, followed the law as best they can. These are the ones who are most likely to feel superior to everyone else in the room, right? They're the ones who felt like we've got it figured out. Everybody else in here needs to get it figured out. We've got it figured out. We're the ones that know what we're doing. We're the ones who are doing the right things. All these other people are doing less than us. Then he also said, And you who fear God. These would be the Gentiles, like Cornelius, who believed and feared God, but who did not follow through with every act of the law, most likely circumcision. And they would have felt inferior to all the others. I want to give us a warning. If you're a person that constantly feels like you're in a superior position to others, as far as your faith goes, be careful. Because that kind of arrogance will lead to major destruction inside of your life. If you're walking thinking, I'm the best person in this room, be cautious. Because we all have common ground at the foot of the cross as sinners with no hope for salvation other than Jesus. Amen? If you walk into this room or this building on a weekly basis feeling like you're inferior to everyone else, be careful. Because you may not be giving yourself your identity inside of Christ. We have no superior or inferior people. Every single person that Christ saves has the same value to him. Does that make sense? So we have to be very cautious with this uh, hierarchy where we think there are people that are greater than or less than us. We put people, some of them I'm going to put above me, above me, some of them I'm going to put below me. No, we meet together at the foot of the cross with only Christ above. It says God chose Israel and he made them great. The people of Israel had a deep pride for their nation. They knew they were great, but they failed to give credit to God. And we do the same thing all the time. I want us to understand this, especially I'm not going to talk about our nation. I want to talk about our church. If any church is great, it's because God made it so. Not because any person or program did it. We so regularly give credit to people for what only God can do. And he says, he made them great during their stay in Egypt. Egypt. All right, this is not what we would write. Okay, if we're writing the story, if we're writing the Bible, if we're writing history, we would say God made the nation of Israel great once they had escaped Egypt, right? God made the nation of uh, Israel great before Egypt. It was during the most terrible time, 400 years of slavery in Egypt is when God made them great. God uses the most difficult times in our lives to do some of his greatest works. Has anybody seen that in your history? Where you look back and see some of the worst times you've gone through, drawing you closer to him. This is what he did with the nation of Israel. So during their time in Egypt is when he made them this great nation. Then he led them out. Israel did not get themselves out of Egypt. God did all of it in his timing. If you feel like you're in a situation or circumstance that is terrible, are you asking for God to deliver you or are you trying to carry that burden yourself? We're gonna talk about two different times of uh, Israel today inside of Paul's message, their time in Egypt, their time in the wilderness. Neither of them were something that they preferred, right? So Egypt was an act of terrible time where they were uh, in in this uh, bitter um, slavery to to the, 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 the leaders of Egypt and it was a terrible time for them. It was hard And then there's God delivering them out, but then there's a time uh, later in the wilderness, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But this time in Egypt, they could have designed their own ways to break out, to break free, to do their own thing. They could have said, we're going to do this ourselves, but that's not what God wanted for them. He wanted them to give him glory for him bringing them out of Egypt. I don't want to ever belittle God's great story of this miraculous thing, uh, story of of him taking the people of Israel out. So I don't want to, I think sometimes we belittle this by saying, what's your Egypt and what's your wilderness? But I do think we can relate to this and say, sometimes we are in positions where life is terrible and you have no control over it. And sometimes what we do is instead of seeking God for deliverance, we seek ourselves and others or our own wit, our own cleverness, or even our own just sheer desire to fight. I'll take myself out of this. When we need to be bowing down and saying, God, I can't do anything here. Will you deliver me from here? So after he takes them out of uh, Egypt, he says, uh, and and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. (laughs) Again, this 40 years in the wilderness, this is not the timing that we would choose. They escaped Egypt only to be led by God into the wilderness. And he put up with them there. They spent much of their time in the wilderness complaining. God hates complaining. But we don't struggle with complaining anymore, do we? The church has conquered that sin. Thank goodness. They told Moses... They should have stayed in Egypt, that their kids were going to die in the wilderness. They said, they're said they complaining nonstop, saying, we should have gone back. At least we had some vegetables to eat in uh, Egypt. That's their literal argument. They're complaining about God setting them free from slavery, saying, let's just go back after God did miracles to show his power of delivering them. We might think that's silly, but how often do we return to this same places of captivity that we've been in, even after God set us free. How often do we return to sin thinking, this might make me feel better today? How often do we turn to complaining after all that God's done? And they said, we should have just stayed in Egypt. At least then our kids would be, would be fine. Now our kids are just going to die in the wilderness and we're just going to sit here and starve. And even though God had been providing food the whole time. So instead of what they said, would be, so they prophesied that they're going to be in the wilderness and their kids are going to die and they're going to sit there and just have to suffer. Instead of their prophecy coming true, God causes something different to happen. He caused them to remain in the wilderness until all of that entire generation died and all of their children inherited the promised land. Again, the timing is not what we would pick, right? But these people, God delivered them from Egypt. And then as they were complaining, they had to spend time in, uh, in the wilderness, right? They had a vote about what to do. They, uh, the vote did not go well. And so they, they chose to, to not go take the promised land. And then they complained nonstop saying, oh man, God, we're gonna starve here and we hate this. And it was so much easier in Egypt being slaves. We wanna go back. Now our kids are gonna die here and we're just gonna sit here and rot. And God caused that entire generation to miss out on what he was doing. And then though they thought their kids would die, their kids are the ones that got to go into the promised land. And after destroying seven nations the land, uh, in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So the people of Israel did fight in these wars, right? These were wars against the, the nations that were inside the land of Canaan. Sometimes they fought well. Sometimes they fought poorly. Sometimes they took matters in their own hands and they failed. Sometimes they listened to God and they succeeded They were a part of these battles, but it was God who gave them victory. See, we're never called to be the ones that do miraculous things like being a nation that wins every war or anything like that. We're called to be obedient. And when we're obedient, God does miraculous, amazing things. And then he gave them their land as an inheritance. They were obedient finally. It took a long time. There's a lot of failures in here that that, uh, Paul is, is glossing over. They're obedient finally in fighting these battles that God called them to fight, but it was God who gave them the land. They could never have done it on their own. Some of you are in places where God's calling you to fight and it is very easy to stop fighting, isn't it? It's very easy to give up. It's very easy to say, "I'm, I'm, I'm done. And I just want to challenge you as God calls you to be obedient, be obedient in doing what he says and trust in him to give victory. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So again, this entire history here, this is 450 years of time. Uh, Who in here loves waiting? Anybody like that? Anybody enjoy waiting? Who in here is just super patient? Anybody want to just say that I'm a patient person? Who in here is not very patient? Just own that yourself. Anybody here that one of your biggest struggles? Yeah, me too. I, uh, one of the quickest ways to get me angry and just in a bad mood is put me behind a bunch of cars moving, moving slowly. I'm, it's a different human. I, I don't know what happens. I get enraged because the world should bow to my wishes, right? <laughs> Traffic should move aside for the great Colin coming through. That's, I mean, think about it. that's really what we're, what we think about ourselves. How dare you slow me down? <laughs> this history took 450 years. Now we might sit and read this part of the old Testament in a few days, but we have to remember this is a long time for v- these victories to happen. We need to be patient sometimes in our battles because we want them to be over sometimes before God is ready for us to be done with them. And our job is not to sit and wallow or not to give up, not to quit. It's to continue daily getting up and fighting, chasing what he says is good, running from what he says is bad. So after this 450 years, he gives them the judges. If you've read the book of Judges, I I love that book. Uh, It's a book of uh, just cycles, right? Time, Time of cycles. They would, uh, the nation of Israel would sin and chase after other things, chase, uh, forget God. God would punish them, typically by sending in other nations that would uh, come in and take them captive. They would eventually cry out for the help saying, oh my goodness, we messed up. God, help us again. We, we, we love you again. We want to come back. God would send a judge in to help them. They would have salvation. Then they would rinse and repeat this cycle over and over and over and over again. Does it sound like anybody, anybody's life? It sounds like mine Sometimes. So that that was the time of the judges. Then he sent Samuel the prophet. Samuel was a great prophet. He did some incredible things. If you read um, his books, I mean, this great stuff. But he was a very poor father. Israel chose a king. We're going to read about this more in a second, but uh, in part because Samuel's sons were terrible. They robbed from the people. They were uh, womanizers. They were awful, awful men. And they were the ones that stood in line to be the next priests, right? Samuel failed his sons. And this is part of what led the whole nation of Israel to give up on believing in priests and what God's design for their nation was. And this is why pastors must choose their families over the church. Because if I have to choose to fail as a pastor or fail as a father, I absolutely choose to fail as a pastor. Every single time. Because you can have any pastor you want. My sons and my daughter can only have one father. I'm the only one there. I have to choose that in church. I need you to help hold me accountable to be that. Because it's very easy to prioritize the wrong things first, isn't it? Any parent here struggle to prioritize your family? Just me? Okay, that's cool. <laughs> I can do that alone. So this, then the nation of Israel asked for a king. So during the time of Samuel, God was their king. They had the, God was, it was a a, a theocracy. Their, Their God was their king. They set things up according to his book, his plan. He wrote the laws. So when we read about the law, we think about the church, but you have to understand this was a nation that was governed by the law of God. This was his law for a nation. He was their king. He spoke to them through his priests and the prophets. But they wanted to be like the other nations who had kings. They rejected God's kingship because they wanted their own king. How many times do we reject God's way because we prefer our own? We say, that does not look like it will work, so I don't want to do it anymore. I want this. Those other people, they're doing that. I want some of that. So he gave them Saul. going to say this phrase again, be careful what you ask for. Saul looked the part. He was tall. He, uh, he looked like a king, talked like a king, but he was not a godly man. He did not lead his, lead the people of Israel closer to God. He was devoted to his kingdom. You see, instead of constantly pointing them back to God, Saul fails in many ways. Uh, His major failure is in the, is in his, uh, Rejection of God's plan, right? God anoints David to be the king before Saul is dethroned and Saul hates it because he wants his kingdom so bad. Do you think we ever pursue our kingdom at the expense of God's? And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. It's God who permits leaders to lead. So God's the one that removes Saul. We read this. I, I, I didn't give this passage to you uh, up there. I don't know if Jude's up there. Or Stephen is. I think it's Jude. Sorry, Jude, you don't have this one. Romans 13, one says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So there are no kings, no leaders that God has not allowed to be in place, Right? And it is God who removes leaders from their positions. God removed Saul at his, in his timing. So he removes Saul from the throne and he raised up David. God had Samuel anoint David as king years before this. But David had to wait for God's timing to actually be instituted as king. Do you think that was an easy time of waiting for David? No. No. He knew it and he saw it. He saw the nation of Israel. He saw, he saw this nation suffering. He saw what he wanted to do. And he had to wait for what God was doing. And he said, so God says that he saw in David a man after my heart. Was David perfect? No, David was not perfect. In fact, he sinned greatly. But God is constantly using sinful, imperfect people to accomplish his great plans. Which is why he's using people like us. What we should be seeing in the story of the Bible when we read about the true, and again, take the kids' stories out. Father Abraham struggled, struggled with sin. Isaac struggled with sin. Jacob struggled with sin. David struggled with sin. These great characters were sinful people that struggled, and God still used them to accomplish his will. They got to be obedient in key areas. And God did the miraculous. He's not waiting on perfect people. He's using imperfect people who are acting in obedience to him. He says, uh, David, he will do do all of my will. David was not called to do the miraculous, but to be obedient. Of this man's offspring, God has brought Israel as a savior. Jesus, as he promised Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, "What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals for whom uh, of whose feet I am not worthy to untie." Christ will royal lineage comes from King David himself. This was supposed to be a sign for the Jewish people that as they saw uh, Jesus coming in, the son of David, they'd say, he's in the royal line and he was to be their savior. It's the Greek word, soterra, one who delivers or saves. So Paul transitions here. He's giving them their history of all the stuff. And I'm sure some of them are thinking, we know this already. We've been to synagogue for our whole lives. We know these stories. We know what happened in our history. But the point was that they missed out of all of the story. It was all pointing to Jesus and they missed the greatest point of their history. They missed the Messiah. God sent from the line of David, Jesus to save the world, to be the savior. He is the one who has come to our prison to remove us from it. He is pursuing us even in our sin. We were his enemies and he came to set us free. Just think of this. The Bible calls us the enemies of God when we're living in our sin. We're not just innocent bystanders. We're active enemies of God. Choosing to connect ourselves to sin instead of him. What could God do? Destroy us all and say, I'm done. Instead, he sends his son to be the savior of the world. By his sacrifice, he comes into our prison where we've willingly been Bound to the enemy, and he sets us free. That's our Savior. It says John came before teaching the baptism of repentance. This means to be so. It's baptisma methanois. That means to be totally immersed. That's what baptism is—an immersion. So to be totally immersed in the changing of one's life. John was telling the Jewish people that they were immersed in sin. And do you know how offensive that was? These were religious people that thought they were good at keeping the law. And they looked at all of us outsiders and said, they're the nasty gross ones. We're good, they're bad. Here comes John saying, no, you're bad. You have sin that needs forgiveness and you can't forgive yourself. You can't work yourself out of it. He says, you are immersed in sin, but you can be immersed in holiness if they would have faith in the Messiah that God would send. So John comes and teaches this message. Then it says, after finishing his course, this made me think of this. There is a duration for a person's ministry and a person's stay somewhere. And it's God that sets that right. God's design is for the ministries of people to exist as long as they do. And it says that, uh, I like it. They asked him, "What, what do you suppose I am? I am not he. He's still coming. John's ministry was incredible. So, so many came to him to hear his message of repentance and to be baptized. They wanted so greatly to hear this because they knew it. Even though they lived a lie thinking we're pretty good, thinking we're all right, even though they played the religious game, they knew that they were missing something. So they came to hear John because he was teaching truth. And the truth was that these were still a bad people, a sinful people that needed salvation. And a lot of these people certainly would have placed him up high on a pedestal, right? Oh, have you been to John the Baptist? John, he's doing a great thing. He is the man. But John the Baptist loved destroying that pedestal because he told the people over and over again, I am not Christ. No man is Jesus. So why do we idolize people so much? Why do we let people take a place, a throne in our lives that only Christ deserves? Would you guys bow your heads and close your eyes with me? My first question for you is this. Are you in a time of Egypt or in a time of wilderness? And again, I don't want to make light of the miraculous act of God to actually deliver the thousands and thousands of Israelites from the nation of Egypt that they had no chance of delivering themselves from. This was a miracle of God. But I do think we can relate to this. This Egypt, this would be a time of bitter trial and tribulation. A time of being completely out of control of your circumstance that is a terrible thing. Wilderness would be a time where God is teaching you something that you wish was different. That you're in a time that is difficult and hard. You're not where you want to be, but you can't get yourself out of it yet either. If you're in that time, are you trying to control it yourself? Are you trying to say, I'll get myself out of here. I'll deliver myself, I will do this. Or are you praying and trusting God that he is the one that can deliver you from trials and tribulations? Are you trying to learn from him and say, I have a chance right now in this time of difficulty to grow closer to God, to learn more about him, or am I choosing this time to just become nothing but bitter and distant? Are you willing to wait for God's timing in that deliverance? Lastly, I wanna ask you this. Is your worship for God alone? We struggle so much with worshiping people and things, but God does not share worship. Will you commit yourself today to being a worshiper of only God? Christ, I pray that you guide us to you today. Let us make much of you. Lord, your people struggled inside of Egypt, inside of the wilderness, but you you are the one that delivered them. You're the one that walked them through. And Lord, even though they complained and they sinned against you, you still walked them through every part of it. Christ, we are lost sinners apart from you, enemies of yours that you've pursued to know you. Christ, let us pursue knowing you better. Help us to worship you and only you. And God, help us to trust you to walk us through our tribulations, through our trials, through our difficult times, because we cannot deliver ourselves. In your name I pray, amen. Please stand and respond however God leads you.